Hello, and welcome back to the Masonic Roundtable, a weekly program where Masons from around the world get together to talk about Masonic news and opinions in a friendly and social manner. Uh, thoughts and disclaimers, uh, the thoughts and disclaimers, goodness gracious. Um, the standard disclaimer applies for tonight's broadcast, the thoughts and opinions, and apparently disclaimers of those here on the show are their own. They do not represent any Grand Lodge statements or positions. Keep your comments open to the public and on the level. Um, and uh, go ahead and interact with us tonight. We're looking forward to interacting you, interacting with you live on the YouTube and the Facebooks. And be forewarned that uh, if you say something cool or something terrible, you may end up on the show. So y'all know me. My name's Jason Richards. I'm a past master vacationalized number 16 in Clifton, Virginia, and member of a couple other lodges as well. Next up for introductions, Brother Joe Martinez. Hello. I'm going to be making fun of you all show. I'm just going to add things you say into the ticker, and that's how we're going to get by with our day, man. It is just, okay. I'm, just, I'm jazzed. Woo! Joe Martinez. Stuff and things. Oh, still worshipful master. I see we haven't changed that. Still worshipful master. Manassa Lives number 182. A uh, member of many, many other things. And damn glad to be here. All right. And for our guest tonight, the one, the only, Matthew Parker. Woo. Definitely the only Matthew Parker. <laughs> um, hi. Yes, there we go. Hi, uh, my name is Matthew or Matt Parker. I'm the Worshipful Master of Nebraska Lodge Number 1 in Omaha, Nebraska. I am proud to be a Nebraska and Kansas Mason and also in a bunch of other things and could not be more thrilled to be here tonight. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brother Matthew. We are super stoked to uh, to have you with us. Um, I uh, just met you recently at MasonicCon Kansas and was blown away by... Uh, your presentation, it was awesome and uh, it was one of my favorites from the entire day. So really, really tickled pink that you were able to, to come on and share uh, share with us about the uh, the Jewish Jewish essentials to Freemasonry. I'm you were going to say ahead. Jewishness, weren't you? I said Jewish essentials. I was not yeah. saying Jewishness. Go ahead, Matthew. Uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here as someone who's been in this space. Uh, uh, of Masonic education, I feel like this is getting called up from the farm team to the major league, so I couldn't be happier to be here. You honor us, sir. Awesome. Well, before we get into tonight's amazing topic, we do need to thank our patrons. Um, thank you all so much uh, for supporting the show. We uh, love each and every one of you. We love most of you. Uh, love some of you. Um <laughs> No, no, no. We're, uh, you know, you're the reason why we're able to do this and, you know, don't have to dip into our own pockets for web hosting fees and things like that, um, which yeah. add up quite a bit over time. So thank you all. Um, if you are interested in helping us keep the lights on, go to patreon.com slash the Masonic Roundtable and, uh, you know, you can get premier access to a uh, subscribers only Facebook group and some other cool stuff. So uh, go ahead and check us out. We'd love to see you. All right. And now it is time for Dun -da -dun, Tarot Card of the Week. Ooh. See, this is what your money gets us. 
you know, alternate, uh, you know, alternate camera angles and, and whatnot. It allows you to fund Jason's tarot card addiction. I, I, I have not bought a single deck with TMR funds. I will, I will say that. Uh, so tonight we have the Prisma visions deck and, uh, doing, doing a little bit of a, a shuffle here. And uh, maybe we'll get the tiny elephants card again. Uh, Ooh. What we have tonight is the page of wands. Ooh. Yeah. So wands, of course, getting into the manifestation and creative aspect of. Uh, I of like your this mind. card. I mean, it's got. Adventure, excitement, energy. I'm digging it. That's what we're gonna have on the show tonight. Just super yeah. raw, awesome Masonic energy just shooting out everywhere. Yeah, someone who is adventurous and lively and um you know, just someone who is who is calling to action and and really just it's it's almost kind of like the fool embarking on on a new journey, but with that added like fervor and excitement and energy. Sweet. Oh, yeah. hi. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. I'm not ready for it. I'm not ready for all this Masonic energy. that's going to happen tonight. You, you were the one who, uh, who changed the camera angle. No, I didn't. Yes. Whatever. Did. I didn't. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. Yeah, this is what happens when, uh, John and Robert call out John, who is doing line dancing. Line dancing. Line dancing. At least observing line dancing. He's observing line dancing. I, I, I don't know if that's much better. Let's let's be real here. Um, I wouldn't observe line dancing. That's, that is true. That's All right. Me. So, the Jewish essentials of Freemasonry. You know, we have we have gone back and forth. Over the past, you know, nine and a half, nine and three quarters years that we've been on the air, going is Freemasonry Jewish, is Freemasonry Christian, is uh, Freemasonry Muslim, you know, and and the answer has all been no, but also inspired by, uh, and so wanted to bring. Matthew on the show tonight to talk a little bit about the Jewish inspirations within Freemasonry um, because Freemasonry really is this awesome, awesomely syncretic system that takes a little bit from everywhere. And so Matthew, with, with that, I'm happy to open it up to you to, to start introducing us to, to this concept and this topic. Sure. Um, I, I give the, uh, the presentation uh, that has this same name, which I call the essential Jewish character of Freemasonry. And I always start with after some definitions and some uh, uh, a prayer that we pray before we uh, read the Torah. I start off with is the Masonic ritual Jewish? And I, it was interesting. I went back and I watched your guys's episode on whether Freemasonry is Christian and when I, as a Jew, went through the uh, the three degrees, it was just an overwhelming feeling of, oh, this ritual is very Christian. Um, the only way that I would not feel it was very Christian is if I had not gone through and read the New Testament and knew what I was hearing. 
But when you know what you're hearing, there are lots of instances of Christian scripture included. And the way that I describe the ritual is that the ritual is very much based on the Old Testament. It's not based on the Tanakh. And that's a, a fine distinction, but I think it's an important one because there are multiple instances of Christian scripture. There are misstatements of the traditions of the Tanakh. And to, to sideboard, yes, uh, Timothy Franks, it is a green screen. I don't actually have this impressive a library. Um, the Tanakh is the Don't Jewish. throw away the magic. <laughs> The, uh, the Hebrew for what we call the Old Testament, because, of course, to us, it is neither old nor testamentary. Uh, and that is an acronym of the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, which are the three sections of it. Because if you remember nothing else, remember JLA, Jews love acronyms. But what's included in the ritual is very much from the Old Testament in that it is done, for my feeling, in a Christian understanding of that in that it is from a view of the Old Testament as leading up to the New Testament, whereas the Tanakh is viewed and interpreted as its own thing. And so I always start off the, the presentation on the essential Jewish character Freemasonry was saying, well, it's not the ritual, because the ritual takes the settings and takes the trappings, but then doesn't use them in a way that, that would feel like authentic Judaism. Yeah, so uh, I was on mute, but now I'm not. So yeah, I want to definitely pull I'd like that you better on mute. <laughs> you shush. So definitely, let's pull on that thread a little bit because yeah. I don't disagree. Uh, I, I definitely don't disagree. I think as you get towards the, and we're going to, at least for my part of the conversation, we're just going to focus on craft Freemasonry because you could okay. say, you could tie a denomination to all of the other appendant bodies in certain degrees, like the Scottish Rite and the York Rite, and, and at way too much conversation for, for one show. But I think to your point, I think your point is very valid. And I think as you get towards the master Mason degree, you start to see a lot of those Christianized elements start to take over during the candidates progress in the second yeah. section of that degree. Right. But, um, but no, I, I think that's a really interesting point that you make because a lot of people do assume that the old Testament of the Christian Bible is the same thing as the, Tanakh when it's absolutely not. And and that's a really salient point that you make. And I wish I heard your presentation, man. Sorry, I couldn't make it to Cam Kansas, that's but right. uh, Jason, Jason did. And he had nothing but awesome things to say about it. But um, I, I think, and please chime in if you disagree, it's a framework, right? And, and you mm -hmm. said so as such at the very beginning that it is a framework. And I think when whoever came up with the legend of Hiram and promoted that as the, the end all be all of craft masonry. Uh, you know, the, the degrees that won out, That's a cool it was a heavily Christianized environment, right? It's, there's oh, no other way to say it. You know, it was 99.9% .9 Christian. Um, so they were absolutely looking through the lens that they understood. And I think you have, you know, if you look at Anderson, you know, when he writes, he tries to be, I think a little, little universal but you know the overtones thereof he lives in a christianized world right and this is all he knows um and it's evident i think especially well, I mean, when you're hopped up on acacia right. and dmt indeed <laughs> and it wouldn't be different if they were writing it today right if if you take america which identifies as 78 percent christian and you ask them to impart great moral truths they would almost certainly be drawing on a very christian influenced background 
because that came up in in the Christian episode was that it's not Christian because they wanted to uh, convert people. It wasn't evangelism because they were already all already Christian. They didn't need to convert. It was just a framework in which they understood the moral truths that they were trying to impart. I don't think I'd like the degrees if they came out in America in like 2000. I don't. I think they'd be kind of janky. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen the Northern Masonic jurisdictions degrees, but I've heard they've got some interesting, interesting revisions that I'd like to see at some point. Cowboys and astronauts. Yeah, those exactly. definitely <laughs> not. Yeah. But no, but to, but to your point, I think that it also depends on where you were, where you are in the country, you know, degrees that, are created in the Bible belt would be much different than degrees in Southern California. You know what I mean? Uh, it'd be interesting to see what that'd be like. Um, and I keep staring at this one comment that I have to, uh, Jason's probably going to get mad, but I have to throw it up there because it just, it's interesting. Right. So, um, right. So um, why, why am I gonna, why am I going to get mad at that comment? Well, I, well, we have to read it for those that only hear us in audio. Yes. So, so if Steve Boyles, go ahead. So, Steve Oyle's really interesting question. If Jews do not believe in Jesus, how do they believe in the Christian elements of Freemasonry? And I would, I would argue that one need not believe in Christian elements, but can still be hugely impacted in a positive way by them. Even, even if they are outside one's, conceptual framework of spirituality right like i you know i i tell people today i see various religions as your particular lens or framework through which you know you view your relationship with god well i think the simple answer for me is i don't believe in the christian elements of freemasonry i believe in their moral teachings uh, like I said, I read the the I've read the entire New Testament. I've read a lot of the Apocrypha. I think that there are great moral lessons in the teachings of Jesus that that seriously impacted me when I read it. Just like there were serious moral lessons in the Quran that uh, very heavily impacted me when I read it, and and the Stoic philosophers. I don't have to believe in the theological element of what I'm being presented with to consider the moral element of it the same way while uh, you know i don't think that the ritual writers knew a whole lot of jews when they were writing it they were clearly taking lessons from our 60 percent of what's called the holy bible and i don't think that they need to necessarily uh, uh believe in the jewish religion to take lessons from the stories of moses and the prophets and the legend of hiram no, spot on. And I think that, uh, and, and you touched on it really succinctly, there's nothing in Freemasonry that proselytizes to anyone, right? It, you know, by the end of this, it's like, oh my goodness, I need to be a Christian today, or I need to be a Jew today after going through the degrees. That should not be happening, right? Yeah. And if, if there is, that's a problem, right? That, that means you're doing something wrong. Because exactly to your point is we're focusing on the philosophical lessons. You know, I love when, and people posted on facebook sometimes and i know it's hokey but i absolutely love it you know that chart that shows the golden rule which is the same basic rule that's in all the major faith groups in the world right and it's just rewording the same thing that all the great religions say you know the wheaton law basically right yeah. um <laughs> you know which i won't say because jason will get mad but um you know, you know what you're being a dick 
And that goes in direct contravention of Wheaton's law, which is don't be a dick. Correct. And that's really spot on. So, yeah. Um, um, Jose Angel asked, could you give an example of how, for example, the KJV Old Testament verses differ from the Tanakh versions, like Psalm 133, maybe? The one that I always go to, the easiest one that I go to for this is, how do you translate the Hebrew word Alma? Because if you translate it wrong, you will create an incredible firestorm of hatred in Christianity because the word Alma in Hebrew uh, gets translated into the Greek Parthenos, which means virgin. But the word Alma does not mean virgin. And in seven of the nine cases where it appears in the Tanakh, it is not translated into Greek as Parthenos. It is translated as another word, which means young woman. And so if you read the Tanakh, you are told that there is a prophecy of a young woman who will give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel. And by the time he has reached the age of majority, he will be eating milk and honey. And that gets translated in the uh, uh, Old Testament, in the Christian context of the Old Testament, hey, uh, as a virgin. And so obviously if you go crack open your Tanakh, you are not going to find a prophecy about a virgin birth because that's not our thing. So that's that's a huge example of how one word gets translated differently and means something very different in our context than it does in the Christian KJV context. No, spot on. That was a perfect example. Um, and we'll let Robert say hello um, for his tardiness, and then we'll continue. Hey, guys. Sorry I'm late. Robert Johnson. Good to see you. Carry yeah. on. Whatever. Good to see you, Matt. Whatever. Are you still secretary? Secretary for life? Yeah, yeah. In two lodges. So. Yeah, RJ Joe's spicy tonight. So. I'm yeah, glad I so... took my uh, omeprazole then. Yeah, he needs some. He <laughs> needs not. some mylanta. For for the specific question of Psalm 133, I pulled up in Safaria, which if you are interested in it, in safaria.org. S e f a r i a. It uses the Jewish Publication Society translation because if I'm reading the Tanakh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to use a Christian translation unless I want to see what the Christian translation is. And Psalm 133 starts, a song of a sense of David, how good and how pleasant it is that brothers dwell together. It is like fine oil on the head running down onto the beard, the beard of Aaron that comes down over the collar of his robe, like the dew of Hermon that falls upon the mountains of Zion. There the Lord ordained blessing everlasting life. So very close, but some differences. Well, I mean, it's let's let's just throw it out there right now. KJV is not my favorite translation of the Bible uh, for quite a few reasons. Yes, but that is the most popular one that's sold at McCoy's and oh, JP Lucas in big blue hardcover. And you can get your name inscribed on it and stuff. So, but yeah, not 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 the winner uh, for me. And but yeah, it's it. You, you bring up an excellent point. Um, not to belabor on it, but. Translations do matter, and I think as we we're lucky, right? So post twentieth century, you get a lot more translations that go back to source material that aren't presented to you by a king of an entire nation that wanted to promote a particular message, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think we're lucky in that we we have the resources to go back to earlier manuscripts and earlier copies of things and, and pick those apart. Um, at least I'm happy about it. Yes, and Stephen Mesnick mentioned, and I, I, he is a friend of mine, and I actually spoke to him earlier about in his jurisdiction, and or excuse me, in another, in the 
Master Mason degree, a discussion of three dispensations of uh, God to man, the pagan, the Jewish, and the Christian, implying that the Jewish is the imperfect middle stage between uh, rude paganism and perfect Christianity. And all I will say is that I'm not, I'm glad that that's not in my jurisdiction because I probably would have walked out after that. I've never heard that before in any of my jurisdictions. Um, but so when, when we're talking about Judaism and Freemasonry, uh, so then if it's not the ritual, what is Jewish about Freemasonry? And I go into essentially the practices and ethics of Freemasonry are what make it essentially Jewish. Because that's Ooh. where I see some distinction yeah. between Say more. Uh, Judaism like, can, and Christianity. Can you, can you say like uh, X is to Y as A is to B? Sure. Like, how can we so, visualize that? Uh, one of the easiest ones is, so I, I'm going to assume that uh, you gentlemen probably grew up in a Christian context. My mom's a new ager. That's fair. Like I'm playing the odds, seventy-eight percent. <laughs> well, Christian new ager. So, what does the New Testament say about how many Christians have to get together to do some churching? Two or more. Right. So you have one that says, uh, "Do not be like the hypocrites praying in the synagogues to be seen. Pray alone in your house." And then you have wherever there are two or three of you are gathered, there I am. Judaism says. Nope, we need 10 guys. If you want to do some of the Jewish services, you need a minion. M-I-N-Y-A-N, not one of the little yellow guys, uh, which is 10 or more adult Jews. And if you are Orthodox, that's 10 or more Jewish men that have had their bar mitzvahs. And if you are, uh, as you go more liberal on the spectrum, that can be men or women that have had their bar or bot mitzvahs. Question. Yeah. Question worth of all. So let's say you were like me and you grew up in New York and you went to at least 10 bar or bot mitzvahs. Does that count? <laughs> you know, I well, growing up in New York almost just by itself, you're good enough. Like, right. right on. You, you at least count for half of it. Half Osmosis. Of the yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but so we say... For our ritual, there is a necessary and constitutional number that must be present. And that includes uh, mourning or sitting shiva. When you most need community but are least likely to ask for it, mm. Judaism says you have to have mm. a certain number of other Jews that come in and sit with you and bring you food and bring that community spirit together so that you can pray. Then we turn around and we see in masonry, you, excuse me, um, Barry, you're correct. You don't have a bar mitzvah. You become a bar mitzvah. I'm speaking very colloquially on it. Um, masonry has a minimum number. And whether that is uh, the ancient numbers that are discussed in ritual or your grand lodge has set a specific number for a quorum, while there is a lot that you can do in Freemasonry and esoteric studies and personal uh, uh, inward-seeking uh, study, if you want to do the business of Freemasonry, you've got to get a certain number of people together as a community. Yep. Um, it's almost and, like a Royal Arch meeting. Well, exactly. Um, we also see 
Christianity very famously is an evangelizing religion. You have uh, the appointment of the apostles and the disciples to go out and spread the good news. It is seen as a positive to go and bring people into the religion. Judaism famously does not evangelize and actively discourages conversion because historically it has not been great to be a Jew uh, in a lot of places. So we want to make sure that you 100% understand what you're doing. Uh, but, and famously, a potential convert is traditionally required to ask three times to convert and then go through a ritual of conversion, which uh, if you're Orthodox also involves uh, bathing in a mikvah, uh, which is, it's not Jewish baptism, but it is a kind of immersion in water that leads it's, to ritual cleanliness. I would say it's definitely lustration. And I mean, it's- Yes, it is lustration, not baptism. Uh, and then, but once you're in, you're in. You, when you convert, uh, one of the traditions that I actually adore is that it's traditional. Uh, a convert takes a Hebrew name, but then uh, their uh, patronymic or matronymic is uh, Ben Avraham v. Sarah or Bat Sarah v. Avraham, which means son or daughter of Abraham and Sarah, the founders of the religion. So a convert literally takes a name that indicates that they are a new branch of Judaism straight from the source. Masonry, what's our most famous motto besides faith, hope, and charity? To be one, ask one. To be one, ask one. To be one, ask one. We don't, change. we don't stand on a street corner. We don't take you by the hand and drag you into the lodge. We ask that you come to us. We have a meeting to make sure you're serious about it and you understand that this isn't going to tell you about the lizard people or how to get rich and influence people, but that you're here for the right reasons and you know what you're doing. Then you undergo a ritual. And once you're a Mason, you're a Mason. And then the, the last one, the biggest one is, it seems to me as someone outside uh, the fold of Christianity that there is a sense among some Christians that prayer is in and of itself enough. That if you have prayed about a thing, that you have done enough of the work that you can be, that that's, that that's all that can be expected of you. Judaism requires active work. Uh, we are commanded to engage in tikkun olam, a phrase which literally means repairing the world. Uh, anything that makes the world a better place, bringing it closer to harmony, for which it was for the harmony in which it was created is an act of tikkun olam. We are given room by the creator to recognize those places where we've used the world roughly, we as humans, and there have been cracks and there have been dents, and that we are given the holy duty of filling in those cracks and helping bang out those dents because. We're not as worried about eschatology as much as we are about bringing the better world to this one. And uh, one of my favorite quotations from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who marched with uh, Dr. King. And he said, for many of us, the march from Selma to Montgomery was about protest and prayer. 
Legs are not lips and walking is not kneeling. And yet our legs uttered songs. Even without words, our march was worship. I felt my legs were praying. Freemasonry similarly is called to be active in the community. We are not called to sit in beautiful temples filled with overflowing coffers and look and see a world crumbling around us and wait for someone else to do it. In Judaism, uh, one of the teachings is that what, when we ask, what is a sin? A sin is a wall on the verge of falling over because it means that everyone sees the wall and no one is doing anything about it. Freemasonry tells us to go be a part of our communities. Uh, Pike in Morals and Dogma says every lodge should be doing something. If you can't start a school, pay for the education of one person. We are not called to be alone and wait for others to do the work. We are called to be the light to the world, showing them a better way in both Judaism and Masonry. Oh, I'm not on mute. Yeah. Okay, cool. I was going to say, <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, that was. Hey, Joe, you're on mute. You're on mute. <laughs> Did you put me on mute? You put me on mute. Uh, I would never do such a thing. I hate you so much. Anyway, what I was saying was <laughs> um, I, I kind of disagreed a little bit with what you said when we came to the fact about uh, the, the general statement that Christianity is, is just prayer. I mean, that's kind of a line in the sand that broke the church at many different aspects, right? And that's one of the reasons why there's so many denominations, because you have one aspect that is faith alone. And then you have one aspect that's faith plus works. Sure. And depending on where you go to church on Sunday, you're just a, to your point, just a prayer person. If I pray, boom, God loves me. But then the other half, I'd say probably more than half is faith plus works. You got to go put your money where your mouth is and go do something. And, and to, to your point, but no, I think that's fair. I, I think the more ecumenical aspects of Christianity, you're absolutely right. Right. If I put on the robe and I pray hard enough, boom, you know, I get the easy ticket up to the, uh, you know, the pearly gates and stuff. But I think, you know, that was one of the big, that was one of the big reasons why it's split into so many different denominations, right? Because there's so many different opinions on how to practice that faith, you know? And that's fair. I was being very broad in that interpretation. No, and that's fine. I, I hadn't spoken in a while, so I felt like I should just say something. So I chimed in with that. Well, well and I think one of the, one of the truly beautiful things that I, that I've seen about Judaism and I admire about Judaism is the emphasis on helping make this world a better place. Um, I feel like, especially today in the United States among Christian denominations, there are pockets that are so fixated on, again, there's a lot of, eschatology talk going on in, in the YouTube chat, but there are pockets of Christians where they are so fixated on the end times that it is used as an excuse not to better the earth because, oh, Jesus is going to come destroy it and build it up new anyway, so I don't need to do anything about it. And I, I'm you know, being pejorative, but it, it's something that is that is a very real philosophy um, in a lot of Christian churches today in the United States. And so having, having that servitude and that calling to 
help those around you and build the world up better um, is, is something that I wish we had more of in Christianity. And I think it, it is one of the things that I love about Judaism is that we are, we are called on to never sit on the sidelines and hope we are. Uh, there's a line that gets misquoted a lot because some of it is, is from the Talmud and some of it is, or from the Perkei Avot specifically, and some of it is the guy's own words on it, but you are not, do not be overwhelmed by the enormity of the work. You are not required to complete it, but neither are you allowed to abandon it. And that combined with the, there's a famous triptych, um, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdoth, justice, justice shall you pursue. Uh-huh. It, it, like masonry, you cannot accomplish the good that you are brought into the world in Judaism to do except by doing it. There is nobility in the labor, even knowing that no one Jew or even one synagogue or one generation of Jews will ever fix the world. But that doesn't mean that we can stop trying. And I feel that that's a very Masonic view that our fraternity has been working to enlighten men and to spread the ideals of, faith, hope, and charity, and toleration for centuries. And sometimes it's gone better than others, and sometimes it has not been a direct upward line to progress, but that doesn't mean you can step away. It means you keep doing what you can do, knowing that you are adding a little light to the world. It's that, uh, that Kaizen approach of just try to do 1% better every yeah. single day. In 100 days, you'll be perfect. Right, exactly. That's it. Boom. Boom. Yeah. Let's talk about real cool Jewish things. Let's talk about the Shamir and how they cut the stones of Solomon's temple. And that's, he's talking about a, a traditional, let me pull up a, uh, an image of it. It is a worm that worms. it's have. It's the it's, magic stone worms. It's just yep. a play on words, though. Like Patrick yes. Day wrote the article that defined it. It's not actually a real worm but it's a it's a fun illustration it totally is a fun illustration (laughs) but for like for people like me who are like oh man some cool crazy extraterrestrial worm they had cutting stones it was the secret of solomon and the ring or whatever it totally will burst your bubble so you guys check that out if you want colorado the uh, rocky mountain mason patrick day writes the article and it's Absolutely fantastic. And that's what I love. Dr. Worm. I love that kind of thing because it's people who know me know that I will rail against the phrase Judeo Christian. I hate the phrase Judeo Christian because it is almost always uh, an attempt to make something that is Christian appear normative by saying, oh, well, Jews do it too. And almost always ignores the fact that Judaism is always wider and weirder than you think it is going to be. And the Shamir is part of that. The tradition that Solomon summoned demons to build the temple is part of that. The fact that a major Orthodox ethicist in the 21st century, or excuse me, 20th century, decided that uh, we that he had to recognize a transgender woman because of the uh, prophet Elijah is part of that. It's Judaism has a beautiful and varied uh, uh, theology behind it that gets flattened to just be Christian, but not Jesus. 
I'm going back to the worms. So let's let's go back the to worms. the. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, let's talk about the temple um, because I think that's just such 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 an important central point of craft masonry, right? Solomon's temple or David's temple, whichever temple. Well, but um, you know, it's it's where we live in, in those three degrees, right? We get to sit on the porch and then the middle chamber and then the holy of holies, which for some reason we get mm. to go play in. And uh, you know, unless if you follow the Jewish faith, then there's only one person that can go in there, and you know, but right. I guess we're super duper special that we can meet in it's, there and do things and stuff. I I have the distinct memory of when I was going through the degrees, and they said that a certain someone liked to go hang out in the Holy of Holies over his lunch break. Lunch and break, I was yeah. like, no, no, he sure didn't, because <laughs> either it wasn't the Holy of Holies because God hadn't actually moved in. Or he was dead. Yeah. Well, that's an oh, interesting the, point, though. So, the temple wait. wasn't finished, though. Right. There was no, was right, there was no, the right, the ark was not there. There was no presence. It was still in progress, right? So, God had not moved in his futon. He could have gone yeah. and had lunch there every day. But then he wasn't having lunch in the Holy of Holies, he was having lunch in a room. Right. A room that may have been symbolic. Sure. A room that was designated. There was a sign, the soon-to-be Holy of Holies, you know, on a rickety little chain, you know. I I went, got to go on the stage at the Detroit Masonic Temple on a tour. That doesn't mean that I've played the Detroit Masonic Temple. Yep. So, cool. We crushed that one. Now, I I was... Go ahead. I was just going to say, that is one of those aspects, along with the, the Hiramic legend overall that shows like the people that wrote the ritual clearly knew the old Testament, but also clearly did not know Jews because Mm. that one is like, you know what guys? And the other one that I point to is if you've gone through the Royal arch, there's a lot that's obsessed with like proving that you are a Jew. And I got to tell you, there is a real fast way to prove that you are a Jew in antiquity, but that was the one degree that let me keep my pants on. So, right. We will not demonstrate that here on the show. Correct. But yeah, that's that's the fascinating uh, uh, thing to me is it, it evinces a knowledge of the scripture, but a lack of understanding of Jewish practice, which is fine. It doesn't need to be an accurate representation of Jewish practice. It's our ritual. It is symbolic and we're imbuing it with meaning. But that is also what makes it frustrating when there are masons who are like no this is what happened at the building of king solomon's temple there were employed and this is literal history just like you guys talked about last week with literalism yeah. <laughs> i was just gonna say wow literal. uh tying it back to last week yep. yep wonderful but that's also an affront to people sometimes right when you start the conversation off by saying well you know we definitely know there was a herod's temple maybe a second temple, but you know, things about the first temple, there's been no physical evidence. And a lot of the story is allegorical. People will lose their minds. Right. And just heads will explode and shit said, oops, sorry. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to start that conversation with people, um, you know, in the framework of quote unquote, Jewish history spoken by Christian Freemasons. So, well, and that's that's something that we talked about at the presentation, uh, at Kansas Masonic that Jason asked about was about, biblical literalism in Judaism and biblical literalism for most of mainstream Judaism is akin to heresy. We are not 
in possession of an absolute literal document which details history going back to the beginning of time. We are in possession of important stories that we believe were divinely inspired and traditions that have been handed down demonstrably for thousands of years, but that have meanings which are not exactly literal. And that that's not only okay, that it's beautiful, right? Like the, the power of the story of Job, which we believe is one of the oldest sections of the Tanakh, is not that it actually happened. It's that there is power in the grief of Job, in the questioning of Job, in the ultimate reconciliation of Job and God, and the fact that we can look at it and say, don't get me wrong, Hashem has a point, but also Job has a point that that was a really, that was a violation of Wheaton's law, what you did to him, and that that's not okay, and that it's okay to not be okay with that. Good omens. Season two, streaming now on Amazon Prime, <laughs> goes into great detail okay. on Job's trials. It's and amazing. that's it's one of the Freemasons can be a contentious bunch sometimes, as much as we are an order dedicated to harmony. And I oh. think that 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 too is reflective of Judaism because one of the best definitions of Judaism that I've ever heard is one of them is Judaism is a 6,000 year conversation about the nature of the divine in which the divine is a participant. Mm. And the other is that Jews are a people who find God so sacred. We will not write out his full name, but also when he's wrong, we will fight him in a Denny's parking lot at two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> like that. <laughs> and that's, there's a story that's told in Judaism about a, a disagreement between the rabbis. And one rabbi believes he's right, and the rest of them believe he's wrong. And the rabbi that believes he's right essentially keeps upping the stakes. If I'm right, then this tree will move, and the tree moves. And the other sages are like, no, nope, still wrong. If I'm right, then the, the tides will show that I'm right. Nope, still wrong. If I'm right, then God will come down from the heavens and tell you I'm right. And God leans down from the heavens and says, he's right. And the other sages turn to him and say, the law is not in heaven. If you did not want us to interpret it, you should not have given us the book. Wow. And the end of that story is the angels ask God, how are you doing, boss? That was, that was pretty rough. And God laughs and says, my creations have surpassed me. Hmm. And that's a good thing in Judaism. Oh, apotheosis for everyone. Woo! Yeah. That, <laughs> that we, are, we are the ones who have the law. The law is in the world. It is not in heaven. And we are going to figure it out. We are given that active role to play. And that's something that I love about it. Mm. Right on. Wow, that's uh, cool. Yeah, I love that story. Um, mm. It's called The Oven of Achnai, A-K-H-N-A-I. It is from the Talmud. I think, so Nunya Business on the YouTube asked, if God is outside, then he does not participate in it currently, which means there is no benefit to prayer, yet we in Masonry American assert there is a benefit to prayer. I'd say, one, asserting that the benefit there is a benefit to prayer is very jurisdictional, Pike certainly believed there that there was, but 
I think that it's uh, the conversation is ongoing. Judaism recognizes that the conversation is ongoing and the extent to which the conversation is ongoing depends on what sect of Judaism you belong to, what denomination. Um, but like I'm, I'm reform and reform Judaism responded to the Holocaust and said, cool, you promised you were never going to try to destroy us completely or let us be destroyed completely. This just happened. Now we get to renegotiate. And so Judaism, it is to a Jewish mindset, it doesn't matter whether prayer is effective or not. Prayer is about community, reaching out and communing with the divine. Because Judaism, as we said, is about the community's relationship to the divine, not any individual's relationship. God never promised, oh, you, I will answer all of your prayers. God said, I will have a relationship with you, my people. Well, let's, let's pull that thread a little bit because you said something that really struck me related to Freemasonry. So, and please chime in any of you if you think differently, but I think one of the big things we teach as we take a candidate through the degrees is that number one, there is value to having a dialogue with the creator. And number two, we teach you that it's a good thing to have a dialogue with the creator, right? To open that, that portal, so to speak, and to be able to have the possibilities open to you that there is a connection between you and the creator and you should use it and you should speak it and you should, talk to him or her um, whenever you see fit, you know, from a personal level. Right. But to your point, then we all get together and stand around an altar, no matter what our religion is. And we commune as well. Right. So, but I think for me, the degrees, we take that person. It's like, okay, you know, a little bit, but this is what you really should be doing. And we're going to tell you through this story that we walk you through about how to do that. And then, yay, there's a prize at the end. Well, and, and, I, I have to respectfully challenge the assertion that if God is outside the universe, then he doesn't participate in it. Um, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. Um, yeah, I wouldn't think so either, Jason. I mean, you're, this is, that can be sliced and diced about a bazillion different ways. I mean, what I think maybe perhaps what he might be alluding to is is more of the the deist uh, idea, right? God spun the world up, and he's all done with it now. Like it's up to us to do the thing. Um, there, there's no inherent sort of uh, reason to pray, uh, which is why you know deists typically won't or they give thanks kind of thing. Um, but it is a very interesting thing. You know, something else that you started to say, Joe, I'm trying to think about in the ritual, which is public here in Illinois. Um, really? Yeah, ours is totally uncoded. It's all just plain written out. Anybody can buy a standard blue book. Um, huh. The only th There are things within it that are in code, but it, like all the lectures are just plain written out. Um and in one of them, it's it says it's in the charge of the first degree, um, right? To um, never mention his name, but with an awe and reverence due from a creature to the creator. 
by looking to him in every instance uh, for emergencies, for comfort and support. Uh, it's like almost the only time it tells me to talk to God is when I got to beg him for something. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, well, to your point, and, and I think well, going back to Jason's point, just to put a big old put this in a circle that that what you were talking about has been an argument for thousands of years, right? Is God, if God is part of the world, then he's not super God, right? If he's part of the world, then he is made up of the world, right? And he's not omniscient and omnipotent. But if he's outside of it, then to Robert's point, does he really care, right? So is he, if he's not made of the stuff of the world, I mean, I would always answer that with- What if, what if the stuff of the world is all made of God? Well, my point would be God can do whatever the hell he wants to do because he's God, right? But um, the, the Nietzschean question, Joe, is can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? He would choose not to. Ooh. No. <laughs> you, can't, but, you can't tell me what God chooses to do. <laughs> <laughs> and and to me, yes, I, I have definitely noted the same thing, that the Masonic ritual tells us to be constantly applying to God. And that is one of the ways in which I think you can definitely see the Christian influence, because the, the, the Jewish response would be, Okay, if you're asking enough, like the old joke goes, you know, God, why didn't you save me from the flood? I sent you a Jeep, I sent you a boat, and I sent you a helicopter. We are called on to, at some point, stop asking and act. And and I think that that's, as Masons, at some point, we're, we also have to do the same thing. We, we are taught to apply to God for aid, but then also given the key to ask our brothers to help us out. Because sometimes God is going to say, well, why didn't you save me? I sent you a thousand brother master masons that you could have applied to in a moment. Why didn't you? Mm, almost sounds like an Old Testament story or two. <laughs> but while, while you guys were talking, this, this popped up uh, by Taylor Tomlin, where he said, when we were all discussing, he said observation is still participation. I think he was referring to the is God of the world or outside of the world kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I saw that, I started thinking about Freemasonry and does it apply to Freemasons? If you just show up and put on a coat and tie and sit on the sidelines and play with the crinkly freaking candy and do absolutely nothing, but just sit there and fall asleep. Are you, are you participatory or are you just there? Inaction is still action. Up oh, okay. Interesting. What if you fall asleep and you're snoring? You're causing an effect. You are acting. It might not be the right action, but you are acting. Yeah, you're, you're screwing it up. <laughs> you know? Also, y'all are getting candy at your lodge meetings? I've been failing as a worshipful man. I don't. I, yes, I, there is no wrapped candy. <laughs> in There's a dude at a certain lodge I won't mention that's not in my jurisdiction who walked around in the uh, the, 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 the dining room and he opened up his Ziploc bag and I was like, how old is that? You know, like he opened it up and he like walked around and he was like, here you go, guys. Everybody gets one before the meeting. And he's like, just take a couple, put it in your pocket. And I'm like, whoa, those they were like the yellow wrapped things, the strawberry cream thingies. Um, like, you know, there's originals, no, there's there's not, originals not even like butterscotch. This was like the stuff that. You're like, oh, you mean like the golden candy in the clear wrapper? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I was okay. like, whoa. So those I like, those are butterscotch. 
I put them in my pocket and I literally I keep it there for good luck. It's a strawberry <laughs> one. But is that the lodge in Virginia you went to? No, 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 no. I okay. want to say because we got a bunch of lodges in Virginia that do that. My mother lodge, we have like benches. And if you stick your hand, you know, in between the bench and the, the back, uh, you can pull out 13, 14 uh, peppermint bob wrappers anytime you want. Damn it. Well, and you mentioned falling asleep. The answer is if you fall asleep, you will be remembered forever. We had a guy who went through our lodge who, second section Master Mason, snoring, and that was years before I joined the lodge, and that, that story has been told to every new Master Mason. <laughs> but I think uh, uh, Taylor brought up uh, the next point. Beyond that, look at an active brothers. Is paying dues enough? It's still technically participation. And no, we are, as Masons, that just like I said, we are called on to go out into the community. We're also called on to go into our lodges. And obviously, we have a series of, of meaningful symbolic lessons about dividing our time. But it, we need to be honest about that. We need to be honest about, am I dividing my time? And do I genuinely have no time left for the lodge? One night a month. And the relief of, of my brethren. Or do, do I have something that I can do? Um, none of your business. Changing gears back to Jews. Always uh, appreciate that. Why did the framers of Freemasonry choose Judaism as a them for Freemasonry? I think he's saying. I theme. think. I, I yeah. I was going to say theme. I. I think because it makes a better story for an initiation, because there's something concrete, right? There's a really good image. We are building the Temple of Solomon. We are building our internal temples uh, to fit us for that house not made with hands, which is all New Testament. Um, it's a great metaphor. There's not as good a building metaphor that you could get through three degrees in the New Testament, right? Like it's you could Roman be, occupation, right? Right. Or you could yeah. be called as fishers of men, but that gets you a degree. Like I, the the Old Testament. At and at, or the Tanakh has a lot more big stories to draw on, which is why we could also get the Noahide degrees out of them. I think there's it's just stole my thunder. Yeah, you, the New Testament is a very focused story. It is about four books about Jesus, and then the story of what happened within the next two months, and then a bunch of letters. There's just <laughs> and there's, a really less, bad acid trip at the end. I know, really bad. God, I would not want to be in Freemasonry if it was all about uh, Revelation. I think my favorite thing is the third, my favorite, having read all of them, is the uh, third letter of John, which is a negative Yelp review and an Airbnb reservation. <laughs> That's funny. Um, it's, it's my favorite. That's Literally, funny. it's this other dude sucks, and can my boy crash on your couch? Um, <laughs> but I, I genuinely think it's because it was a, they looked at it and they were like, oh, there's a better story here. And we can pick this guy. And even though he was actually a metal worker, we can make him a stonemason. And well, you, you, you're kind of tying a bow on that, right? It was a great framework for an allegory, right? Just like all the other great initiation stories are, you know? Right. Uh, whether you're Egyptian or Phoenician or Sumerian or Greek or 
Christian living in Western Europe in the 16th and 17th century. Um, you know, it's a good framework. Um, but I think to, to your point is the people who wrote the ritual, I think personally, they had a good understanding of the process of initiation. And I think they were more concerned with that than the details yeah. about how perfect they were centered around the Jewish faith, to your point. Well, and I think if you were writing them about the, the New Testament, who would the candidate represent and how is that not blasphemy? Lazarus. <laughs> I mean, Lazarus would be good. That Actually, that would not be bad. But the well, only that's, other... that's, that's a whole Rudolf Steiner thing. But, oh, but the only yeah. other option is you are Jesus, and that does not seem like something that would not piss off the church. You could be the yeah. woman at the well. That'd be a that'd be I think, cool. I think it's it's just an interesting thing because right, we go from you know the origins of masonry or whatever. I think we just needed some sort of modicum to to portray this stuff, and and biblical stories were very popular because it sure. was the it was the thing. That's what everybody wanted, right? Like everybody had this context. You didn't have to spend like a thousand years trying to like get somebody to understand what's happening. These were, you know, stories that these people kind of knew already. So to take an active role in a participant in something like this, I mean, I, I remember something Jason gave a presentation on, on at one point, and I think uh, you had showed some old newspaper clippings where uh, you had imagery of some of the, uh, uh, biblical plays that were happening and, and, you know, Masons yes. walking in the streets and things. The, uh, yeah, the, uh, festival of Corpus Christi in the York, uh, England, uh, passion place. Yeah. Which I'm also very glad we did not use as the basis for our rituals. Cause I would not have been real comfortable with the passion play. Um, there was a comment that I saw, uh, you don't think it had to do with the fact that many other societies were using Solomon. It was the fat at the time. I think that's part of it, certainly. But I think that that also goes to the same question of why were they all using Solomon? Because it is a good story to build on because there's a lot there and you can draw parallels to Christianity without having to have your people literally reenact the resurrection or the crucifixion. You can allegorically draw them through. And we, you know, uh, uh, Jason talked about in his amazing presentation at Kansas Masonicon, the stages of initiation and the relationship between initiation and death. You can go through all of that without either it being so trite as to be meaningless or so one-to-one -one that it ends up blasphemous. And I think that that's why it makes it such a good, a, a deep well to draw on. Well, and, and let's be honest, too. I, another great reason why that, that story is so perfect for allegory is that there's a lot of stuff that's not fleshed out, right? Hiram is mentioned, what, twice? Yeah. My name. And given two different tribes. Right, exactly. And that's it. So there's so much playroom to add a lot of detail and stuff there that, you know, that's, that's perfect for ritual. Um, whereas if something to your point is, let's just say the passion play, for example, that is so detailed in so many different places by so many different people who have their own opinions on it. It'd be hard to add your own flavor and color and maybe moral lesson to it at the end. You know, I, Matthew, did you know that Adam was a Mason? I, son, Card, <laughs> I don't know you. Shut up, son, Card. Person? Okay, good. Then they're, they're in the right reaction. <laughs> no, I, lo I love, I love him, but he's being a Sun Card's awesome. He, uh, we've met him in person. Okay. Great dude. 
He's being a banana right now. Yeah. Ignore him. Well, and that's one of the other the drums that I like to bang on is masonry is the oldest continually operating fraternity in the world. We have influenced thousands, hundreds of thousands of men. We've literally changed the world. We don't also need to go make stuff up. We can be proud of our actual history without having to be like, oh, this is the, the unaltered secret knowledge passed on from the ancients transmitted by the Druids, preserved by the Knights Templar. We, we can be who we are authentically, and that's cool enough. I don't know, man. I like ancient secrets and stuff. That, you know. I wish that I could have the hair to do the aliens guy. Oh, you don't yeah. need the hair to be fabulous. That's fair. You just be fabulous. I try. Boom. All but right. Yeah, I think it... All right. I know none of your business asked us to go later tonight. But I think it's time for us to wrap things up. Because I could sit here talking with Matthew for hours, and maybe could, yeah. maybe we'll do yeah. that as a as a long form in the future. Sure, I'd love to do that. But and uh, in, instead of a final question for this evening, I would love to kick it back over to Brother Matthew just to give us a couple final thoughts on the the intersection and interplay between uh, Judaism and Freemasonry. Sure. There are two concepts in Judaism, chesed and rachamim. Chesed is mercy. It is the phrase that is most often translated as loving kindness. It is originally a term for acts of mercy between those with a contractual obligation, most often from God to Israel. But later it is interpreted more broadly, those acts of mercy to ones who cannot pay you back. The more one-sided it is, the more merciful, such as giving money to a complete stranger who will never know in a way that you can never benefit. And rachamim is the root word. The root word is the Hebrew for womb. It is the feeling of connection to all living things as being partially of one flesh, born of the same spirit, and who should be treated as kindly as one would treat one's own child. And when I think about chesed and rachamim, I, I see masonry. Because what are we told to do if not to give charity to the widow and orphan, expecting nothing in return, and what are we told to do but to inculcate those feelings of brotherly love and affection, not just for Masons, but for everyone on the planet, those who we know, those who we don't know. And I think while the ritual may be heavily Christian, while the people who wrote it were, he were heavily Christian, the, the Jewish ethics and spirit of Freemasonry are one of the most beautiful things about it to me. And I hope that Tonight, there has been uh, some of that feeling of chesed and rachamim that has been kindled in everyone listening, and I hope that we've given you something to think about. And if you want to know more, please feel free to reach out to any of us, and we would be happy to extend that uh, rachamim to all of our brothers and everyone who watched us tonight. Mazel. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, uh, Matthew. This has been absolutely phenomenal episode, and just can't can't thank you enough for for coming on and sharing some light and wisdom with us uh tonight so we'll be back next week uh looking forward to it with uh with another great show another great topic and uh 
in the meantime, you know, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. And y'all go keep searching for more light now. Wow. Pew, pew. Mazel tov.